0: This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast.
1: So what can you accomplish through pro bono work? We've told you plenty of stories, stories where pro bono lawyers made a huge difference in the life of a person or a family. But what if your pro bono work could fundamentally... Restructure the delivery of justice for your whole community. That seems worth some extra time in late evenings, doesn't it? We are in a moment right now where you could donate your time in your community. You could work on ensuring a right to counsel when people are trying to hold on to their homes in eviction court.
2: So by letting the courts know we're paying attention, just really sort of trying to say the spotlight is on housing court and the way things used to be is is just no longer acceptable.
1: Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Let's start this episode in the wayback machine. The most famous example of a right to counsel is the right for defendants to have a lawyer appointed in criminal court. It's often called a Gideon right. And that's a reference to the 1963 U.S. Supreme Court case Gideon v. Wainwright. Like most lawyers, I know what people mean when they say Gideon. But I hadn't paid any attention to really anything about the case except the holding.
2: The Gideon matter was a pro bono matter for a large law firm.
1: That's Alison King, pro bono counsel at Kirkland and & Ellis, and also co-chair of the New York City Bar Association Task Force on the Civil Right to Counsel. She knows this tidbit, which too many of us have ignored, because she used to be pro bono counsel for Arnold & Porter. I don't think that's well-known. I mean, I certainly have never before thought about who were the lawyers that brought the Gideon case. And that's an important point, that it was actually a result of pro bono work.
2: It was. It was Arnold and Porter. They represented Abe Fortas represented.
1: After I talked with Allison... I got really curious and dug into everything I could find about the facts behind the case Gideon v. Wainwright. And the full story is pretty interesting. In 1961, Clarence Gideon was arrested in Florida. He was accused of breaking into a pool hall and stealing a few drinks and some money, less than $500 in today's money. Gideon was poor and he asked to have a lawyer appointed for him. But the court told him, They could only do that in a death penalty case. So Gideon represented himself. He was convicted and then sentenced to five years in prison. While in prison, Gideon figured out how to file a habeas petition to the Florida Supreme Court, arguing he had a right to a lawyer under the 6th and 14th Amendments. But he lost. So then, he wrote out, literally hand-wrote, a petition for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court agreed to hear the case. But I'm also guessing that they realized it would look pretty bad if a guy whose whole argument was I can't afford a lawyer and I need one to protect my rights was then expected to go up against the state of Florida in the Supreme Court without a lawyer. So the court got one for him. Sometimes you find the pro bono case that fits your schedule and your interests. But other times, the pro bono case, it finds you. In Gideon v. Wainwright, the Supreme Court appointed Abe Fortas, a founding partner at Arnold and & Porter, and later a Supreme Court justice. Abe Fortas brought Abe Crash and Ralph Temple onto the team, plus a law student named John Eli, who would go on to be dean of Stanford Law School one day. Of course, we all know what happened. The Arnold and Porter team won the case. Justice Douglas later called Portis's argument the single best he heard in 36 years on the court. The Supreme Court unanimously held there is a constitutional right to have a lawyer appointed in state court criminal cases. And we should pay attention to the reasoning because it is pretty useful for our thinking about right to counsel in other areas today. Justice Black wrote that, quote, "...governments quite properly spend vast sums of money to establish machinery to try defendants accused of crime." That government hires lawyers to prosecute and defendants who have the money hire lawyers to defend are the strongest indications of the widespread belief that lawyers in criminal courts are necessities, not luxuries." Black also quoted an earlier decision, which pointed out that even the intelligent and educated layman has small and sometimes no skill in the science of law. He lacks both the skill and knowledge adequately to prepare his defense, even though he has a perfect one. And sure enough, Gideon went on to prove exactly how important a lawyer is. When the state of Florida retried him for the crime, he was appointed a lawyer. The lawyer got additional facts in on cross-examination, and the jury found him not guilty. What can you accomplish with your pro bono work? For Abe Fortas, Abe Crash, and Ralph Temple, the answer was a shift in the fundamental fairness in every state's criminal justice system. But that was 1963. What about today? Is there an area where the right to be heard is of little avail without counsel? Where people with a perfect defense are nonetheless stripped of important rights because they have no skill in the, quote, science of law? Where one side spends money on lawyers and the other side has no realistic ability to hire counsel? We found an expert on the issue to talk about the need for a lawyer in residential eviction
3: cases. My name is Andrew Scherer. I am a visiting associate professor and the policy director of the Wilf Impact Center for Public Interest Law at New York Law School. I've been actively engaged over several decades advocating for the idea that someone facing eviction from their home should have a right to counsel.
1: Andrew is also the co-chair of the New York City Bar Association Task Force, along with Alison King, who you already met. We'll come back around to Allison in a bit. But for now, let's talk with Andrew about housing, eviction, and right to counsel in New York
3: City. If you're brought to court in any proceeding, you have a right to appear by counsel. But having a right to counsel is meaningless if you can't afford to pay for counsel.
1: What is the parallel between a criminal case and a residential eviction case? Well, both proceedings put a fundamental human right at risk. In criminal court, it is your liberty, the right of the state to seize and hold your body. In eviction court, it is your shelter, the right of a landlord with the help of the state to put you out of your home with no guarantee you can find a new one. And some might assume that eviction court is simpler than criminal court. The question is, did you pay? If you didn't, you have to move. Some might assume it is easy, more like small claims court, and no lawyers are needed. But the behavior of landlords suggests those assumptions are not quite right. What is the ratio of landlords having lawyers before right to counsel?
3: The city did a study where I think they found that 97 percent of the tenants were going unrepresented and something less than 10 percent of the landlords were going unrepresented. So for the most part, landlords had representation. Tenants did not. The
1: stories I could tell you from my days as an eviction lawyer at Legal Aid in Chicago. There were the outrageous ones women facing eviction because their ex broke into the apartment to assault them, or landlords removing doors and windows to make apartments unlivable. But then there were the mundane, everyday court stories. People genuinely thinking they had negotiated 14 days to pay the back rent and keep their home, but they had actually signed an order evicting them. Tenants telling the court, but I haven't had heat, and judges cutting them off to say, so, how soon can you move? Tenants just had no idea that they could ask for a continuance to get a lawyer, ask for a trial to present witnesses and defenses to win the case, negotiate to move quickly without paying, or agree to move and pay as a settlement without an actual eviction being entered on their record. Tenants often couldn't distinguish between the landlord's lawyer and court staff. It just felt like everyone was there for the sole purpose of kicking them out of their home and making it nearly impossible to get a new one. Andrew talks about what he knows of the crush of cases in New York eviction courts.
3: Very one-sided, unfair stipulations where the court's this is five housing courts, one for each borough, are notorious in the kind of the way in which human beings are packed into small spaces that never were designed to accommodate litigation as we know it between parties who have representation. And just to give you some sort of statistics on this, the New York City Housing Court has 50 judges. They hear, actually, the number of cases is going down as a result of right to counsel, but at its height, they were hearing maybe 320,000 cases a year, those 50 judges. And the federal district courts in the entire United States hear about the same number of cases a year, 300 and change, 1,000 cases a year, and they have 1,200 judges and federal magistrates to hear that number of cases. So that gives you an idea of the, 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 the volume that these judges are expected to entertain in their courtrooms. And in fact, one of the advocacy groups in New York City did a report about 30 years ago now, but it rang true for you know many years after. They called it Five Minute Justice because on average, tenants were getting five minutes before a judge without a lawyer representing them to try to make their case for why they should be able to stay in their homes.
1: That's pretty Uh, good. In Chicago, they uh, did a study and figured out they were getting two minutes.
3: You're right. Yeah. Hey, Uh, (laughs) uh, it's all pathetic is what it is. But yeah. Yes. No, I'm aware of that study. Yeah.
1: I keep thinking back to Justice Black's decision in Gideon. How do we know you need a lawyer in criminal court? Because government makes sure that the state always has a lawyer. How do we know you need a lawyer in eviction court? Because over 90% of landlords spend the money to have one.
3: For the last number of years, there's been a movement to establish a right to counsel for people who are facing eviction and who can't afford counsel. And that movement has really gained traction over the last number of years. We were able to get a Right to counsel law for tenants in New York City in 2017. I had been a housing lawyer in New York City for decades before the right to counsel and ran the largest civil legal services program in the city. Before the advent of the right to counsel, there were maybe 50 to 75 tenant lawyers in New York City for low-income people working in the nonprofit legal services programs And now there are probably close to 700. So it has been a remarkable growth in a field that really had very sort of sparse representation in the legal world, which is very interesting to watch because it it really has great implications for the practice of law in that area. When you go from a kind of a forum in which the, the expectation is, you know, for the most part, that one side will not be represented to to a very different set of expectations has a huge impact.
1: Yeah. I mean, just in the 10 times expansion in the number of lawyers focusing on the work is a huge shift. So why do we care? I mean, if you are pretty sure that you will never be facing eviction or pretty sure you can hire a lawyer if you need one, why do you care? if people have a publicly funded right to counsel for eviction court. I'd suggest we all care because eviction causes a cascade of problems that are both terrible for the evicted family and terrible for our communities. In our episode, Keeping Tenants in Their Homes, Lorene Lopez talked about families being unable to replace the housing they lost because of rising rent prices, housing shortages and the unwillingness of new landlords to rent when they see an eviction on the credit report. When families can't re-rent, they become displaced from their communities. Kids' educations are disrupted, and they end up living in cars, in parks, in overcrowded spaces with extended family, or in publicly funded homeless shelters. The ability to provide a safe space for kids to study and sleep at night. Access to bathrooms and showers to be presentable at a job? The opportunity to put down roots and be part of a community? I hope we can all see that as equally important to Clarence Gideon's right to protect his liberty when accused of a crime.
3: Keeping a family in their homes is transformational. I mean, or at least it avoids all the, you know, awful, awful things that happen when people get evicted. I mean, not the least of which is becoming homeless and, you know, having to bring your kids to shelters. But the disruption in life, in employment, in education, it's the effect on mental health, it's the implications for the criminal justice system, all those things get averted if you keep people in their homes and in their communities where they have ties, where their kids go to school. You know, it's, it's, it's so enormously helpful. And it ends up being actually a cost savings for government because there are a lot of expenses that government is put to that are associated with people who get evicted, who end up homeless, who end up having, you know, kids having greater problems in school. And we're trying to track that data. There have been some studies done, and they, they all show that the money spent by government to provide counsel for people who are facing eviction is offset by savings to the public in expenses related to the consequences of people getting evicted from their homes.
1: So I heard you say the number of cases is going down because of right to counsel. Talk to me more about yeah, that. Yeah.
3: So so New York City passed the legislation in 2017. It, it was intended to have a five-year rollout and the actual full implementation was accelerated during the, the, the pandemic. But what has happened since and, you know, the pandemic in, in terms of trying to understand the statistics has certainly complicated things. But prior to the pandemic, the number of cases filed by landlords had gotten down by about 25 percent.
2: In New York City, landlords and their lawyers support right to counsel. Why do you think that is? It doesn't come up the works. I mean, it may slow down certain cases, but it, it makes it more efficient and then it's a lawyer talking to a lawyer. And we tend to like that. And,
3: and, and particularly if you have landlords who want the money, don't necessarily want the person out, then having a lawyer there can really, you know, you can hammer it out. How much is really owed? What's the warranty of habitability payment? Whatever. And then the lawyer can help pursue avenues for the tenant to get the money. So that's something that is, is appreciated. The numbers of people able to retain their homes is uh, the city's study again before the pandemic was 84 percent of the people represented were actually able to retain their homes. And since that law was adopted by New York City, 15 other localities and three states have established the right to counsel for tenants who face eviction. And there's really a growing movement all over the country. What
1: are the three states that have passed it?
3: Maryland, Connecticut, and Washington State, all very recently. But it's really very significant. San Francisco is the second city, I think, they are keeping like 67% of the tenants who they're representing in their homes. Cleveland is one of the cities that established the right to cancel. think like 93% of the tenants that they're represented are ending up staying in their homes. Those numbers are high.
1: I mean, I'll ask again, how do we know you need a lawyer in residential eviction court? Because having one substantially changes the outcome. Listen back to our Keeping Tenants in Their Homes episode to hear about the Harvard research on the difference a lawyer makes. So, let's assume for the moment we have persuaded you. Yes, shelter is as important as liberty. Yes, tenants need lawyers. Yes, right to counsel should be expanded. But what can you do as a pro bono lawyer? I mean, it's not likely you'll get a call from the Supreme Court like Abe Fortas did. And you probably are not knowledgeable about the truly arcane regulations that can apply to residential housing in your city. You want to volunteer your time and knowledge to the right to counsel movement, but how? I asked Allison and Andrew to talk about the experience in New York City and how pro bono lawyers made it possible to pass a right to counsel there. I just want to confirm that I have a correct understanding. It is similar to a public defender system in the idea that if you are a defendant, a tenant in an eviction case and you can't afford a lawyer, then someone will be appointed for you. in New York, am I right that that is a a professional, full time eviction defense lawyer?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, you know, you could have different systems that implement a right to counsel, but in New York, New York City is has been entering into contracts with nonprofit organizations that provide free legal services. I think that's a good way to go.
2: Also, the, the nonprofit legal services provide other um, support to that community. So. Uh, by having the housing lawyers in the same organization as the benefits lawyers and the discrimination—I mean, other people who can then work with that client to say, "Okay, well, you know, you have an issue with your housing, but did you know you actually aren't getting all the benefits that you're entitled to?" And that will help with this housing situation. So it, it allows the legal services, the nonprofits, to really have a true sense of the community and the ways in which they can be helpful to that community and, and engaging with the city and with a private bar to do so.
1: That's a great uh, segue, Allison, because I think I want to hear from you. You know, if we're looking at a system that is similar in some ways to a public defender system that uses professional nonprofit lawyers to do the representation, I would really like to hear from you about what you think the role is of private firms and pro bono in communities that either have right to counsel or are trying to get right to counsel? I think
2: from my perspective, the better system is the professional housing lawyer representing the client in an eviction proceeding, because the the courthouses are a little bit interesting and specific, and it's just a its a very important practice, and the outcome for the clients is, is critical for themselves and for their families. So for sort of full representation on an eviction proceeding, that should be professional housing lawyers. For other types of proceedings in housing court that are not about eviction, that in some ways are constructive eviction, such as housing repair work or um, nuisance cases, Those are great places, at least in New York City, from what we've been talking to the different legal services, for the law firms to get involved and to send our lawyers to to be supervised by the pro bono professional at the legal services organization to work with the housing lawyers to identify the places where we can be the most helpful.
1: Allison makes a good point about firm lawyers volunteering their time to help an individual family with a conditions case. The lack of heat, the partially caved-in roof, the rodent infestation, but I promised you a story about how pro bono could change the system of justice in your community. What is Allison's experience with that?
2: I got involved um, with right to counsel in housing court because I was part of the New York City Bar Bar Association's pro bono legal services committee, and when I was the chair of that committee, we got one of our members uh, from that committee told us about the right to counsel movement and ways in which we could be helpful. So there was a financial services company, Stout Ross and Rissius, that was very interested in working on pro bono matters. And we, as a committee, we were very interested in the sort of savings that could be proven if you have a lawyer as opposed to the system that was at the
1: time. So here's an example of pro bono making an impact. Allison is active in the Bar Association, a volunteer activity. The committee recruits the financial services valuation firm Stout, Recius, and Ross to do a study and give an opinion. What are the costs and benefits of paying for low-income tenants to have a lawyer? And with that pro bono cost-benefit report, New York City concluded it would actually save money by providing tenants a lawyer. If you'd like to get into the details, you can find a link to that report on the episode webpage. That
2: Ross and Ricius did this study of the costs of housing court versus the cost of our shelter system and all the other support systems in the city and we presented that as sort of support to the mayor's office and actually first to city council and then to the mayor's office for this entire process. So we find ourselves, we take a little bit of credit for making that successful. I think Andy with Andrew would disagree. <laughs> I think his work and the advocate's work was a much bigger part of it but we were very proud of our of our part in it.
3: So I don't uh, disagree with Allison at all. I think that the, <laughs> the, the, the cost-benefit study that was commissioned by the city bar was really a game changer. It really helped, you know, I I think the study found that the full cost of right to counsel would be around $200 million a year for the city, but that they would save something like $350 million a year by implementing the right to counsel.
2: And so I went to the city bar and asked that we could create a task force on the right to counsel, on the civil right to counsel, to monitor the rollout and provide our thoughts on how to make it really successful for the communities in which we serve. And so the city bar said that would be wonderful. And we we speak to all the different parties. So we've spoken to the city, we speak to the the court, to the judges in the court, and we did visits to the courthouses, and we've had the legal services providers who are providing uh, the um, expertise come and speak to
3: us about what does the rollout look like. The greatest contribution to make is to sort of be there uh, and be supportive of the idea that people have a right to counsel and use the kind of, you know, pooled intelligence and resources of the private bar to really help move the movement along because, you know, the bar associations have a great deal of credibility with legislators and policymakers. And for for quite a number of decades, they've been a really important voice on access to justice. And this is, I think, one of the most significant steps forward in access to justice since Gideon. There actually have been clear indications through the data that fewer people are showing up in the homeless shelters as a result of eviction. I think it's fairly uh, widely acknowledged by the city that that's the case.
1: The other thing that I think is interesting about right to counsel is the way it
3: changes the culture in the court. So the expectations were changing. The numbers of written decisions were going up considerably because judges were having to deal not just with pro se stipulations, between a represented uh, landlord and a and an unrepresented tenant, but they were having to actually decide motions, actually treat court like court. So there was litigation taking place. The you know the culture of that court is pretty notorious for being you know not just I've, I talked before about the sort of quality of the physical space, but also the the atmosphere was always really awful. And then recently. Jay Johnson, who used to be Secretary of Homeland Security, was asked by our chief judge in New York to look at racial disparities, racial bias in the courts. And he singled out housing court as a a really problematic atmosphere. I think he called it a cattle call court, a court in which, you know, it's not doesn't give the appearance of justice taking place. It gives the appearance of just kind of moving people around and processing them through some, you know, system. So so that's changing. It's changing.
2: The other aspect that the private bar brings is attention. So by letting the courts know we're paying attention, by allowing the written testimony, like written litigation to actually be litigation with opportunities to do pro bono in the appellate space based on anything that's appealed from the housing court, just really sort of trying to say the spotlight is on housing court and the way things used to be is, is just no longer... Acceptable, And I think that's something that the private bar and the Bar Association can really bring to the conversation, which is this is not how our profession is supposed to be handling our clients and handling itself. So it's I think that sort of attention to the matter has been really useful.
1: So, wait, can we sit with that for a minute? So Secretary Johnson, when he came in and did an assessment. He was at the time at a private firm.
2: He left the government practice and joined Paul Weiss and was a partner at Paul Weiss. It is the way that the law firms can can provide assistance. And that's, I think, really helpful for more senior attorneys at large law firms who don't always feel that they can, they don't really want to do individual rep mm-hmm. in a housing court matter, but they can still bring their gravitas and their, and their credibility to the, to the table. To make sure that the conversation is a bit more just to change the balance of power to back how it should be a little bit more
1: balanced. So I've heard you talk about participation in the Bar Association as a kind of pro bono that that brings attention, brings gravitas, can make a difference. Your leadership on the task force to make this happen. I heard you say that you commissioned a study and the word commissioned to me implies that someone had to get paid for this. I I
3: know, I believe it was also pro bono. I think I used that phrase. And all I really meant was that it was the city bar that reached out to Mm -hmm. Stout and asked Stout to do this. They did it pro bono. And in fact, uh, a guy named Neil Steinkamp is the person who kind of put this together for New York. He's been doing similar studies all over the country now.
1: But I actually think, Allison, that's an underappreciated kind of pro bono, which is kind of. Uh, not kind of, it is using relationships that you have with other sorts of professionals to support and encourage them to do pro bono. It's fairly
2: unusual, actually, to get a professional from a different profession to provide pro bono because they don't have the same ethical obligation that lawyers do. So accountants don't have an ethical obligation to provide accounting services to those who cannot afford them. And the same is true with financial services companies so it's it's fairly unusual, particularly, I think this was Neil Steinkamp, who really thought there was a way that he could use his professional skills to volunteer in a professional manner. But the idea is that there are many people who are professional people in every profession you can think of do look around and understand that the system is a bit broken and could do with a little bit of a system.
3: In a way, the the representing individual tenants in housing court is maybe the least useful way. For pro bono to help to be involved, because it's a high volume court by the time, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's not simple. There's a lot of complex law. So if you're going to train somebody and get them prepared to handle these cases, you don't want to do that for a one off or even a half a dozen cases. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, you know the New York City law doesn't cover appeals. Maybe the pro bono sector could do appeals. It doesn't cover tenant initiated actions for repairs. Allison herself did one of those cases, but it's a good way to complement the work of the professional legal services lawyers who are doing the eviction defense to work maybe on proactive litigation, affirmative litigation, to get landlords to do what they're obliged to be
2: doing. Certainly the housing repair work is an area in which the legal services have been working with law firms for a while. And in fact, the one I actually represented, a client who housing repair issues, and we we co-counseled with an in-house legal department. So the landlord's attorneys saw the names of the parties, and I would say we got everything we wanted (laughs) pretty quickly. (laughs) So it wasn't the most difficult negotiation in the world, but it did allow us to be supportive of the housing work being done by legal services. My passion for pro bono comes from if we're going to set up a system that requires a lawyer to navigate it, you should have a lawyer. Whatever that is, I mean, even negotiating a settlement requires someone who's good at negotiating. All right? I mean, it, it, there's different ways that people can get involved, but if we have a system and we want that system to work,
1: everyone has to show up. To borrow the phrase of Brian Stevenson, because it makes people proximate. And that, Allison, what you said earlier about the way that firms who carry authority and influence in their communities. The way that firms can participate in this is by paying attention. I really like the way you put it as paying attention. If people either want to connect to their local existing right to counsel movement or if they want to get one going, what do you recommend they do?
3: So the best place to contact is the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. It's a network of advocates around the country, the network around the Civil Right Council in many areas, but particularly because it's, this is the hot area right now around trying to expand the right to counsel for tenants. And that's a great place to find out what's going on in your locality. There are scores and scores of cities right now where there's a you know a movement towards the right to counsel.
1: Allison, do you have any thoughts for firms, attorneys at firms who would like to get involved?
2: I think speaking to your local legal services provider is always a good place to start. figure out where they need the help. And if you're very specifically interested in in housing matters i'm I'm almost positive every jurisdiction will have somebody who works in that space, so getting to know who those are, supporting them financially, supporting them with volunteer work, asking sort of where they're involved and where where you can be helpful. using the relationship. so you talked about. Getting professionals from other professions involved. You may know some lobbyists. You may know someone who does consulting services, and see if you can connect them to the to the effort. I think also bar associations are a great place uh, to sort of fight, figure out what where your bar association stands on the issue, and if they're even if they're even focused on it, and if not, maybe get them focused on it. Sort of speak to the judges you know, and and sort of find out what's going on. There's a lot of very good information available and lots of, sort of very legal, sort of academic pieces on it.
3: You know, I just uh, remembered a project that is a pro bono project that's working with the National Coalition that is of interest for this podcast. The uh, law firm Anti-Racist Alliance is working right now on a volunteer project with the National Coalition, which I was involved with. They're interviewing people in the jurisdictions around the country that have won the right to counsel in order to kind of capture those stories and help people in other jurisdictions who are trying to win the right to counsel. So, you know, what kinds of metrics did you use? What kinds of arguments were compelling? Who? Are, where were the pressure points? And it's uh, it's a primarily pro bono project.
2: I do think, though, for me, I, understanding the true nature of the problem and the complexity of the problem, but the, but the complete size of it. I mean, I think the data that we're collecting as a community is going to help in a lot of the advocacy for people in our community. I've been thrilled to be any part of this, because this is really transformative. It's really important to the city.
1: That's what we try to lift up at Pursuing Justice. Different ways that lawyers can volunteer their time, skill, and attention to do something transformative. You could represent a family on a housing repair case. You could handle an appeal on an eviction issue. You could urge your bar association to get active on right to counsel. You could do the legwork on a right to counsel committee. You could educate your friends and business associates in other professions and urge them to contribute their expertise. You have the capacity to shine a light on a piece of our justice system that isn't working very well, and maybe transform your community in the process.
0: Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit PLI.edu slash probono.